All right. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to the Season 4 opener, Dietloff Pass. <laughs> I'm joined, as usual, by a man who remembers everything, whether it happened or not. Brian, what's up? Sure. I'm doing, I'm doing good, though. Speaking of memory, I don't remember what it feels like to not be sick. Yeah. And to have my normal voice, because we haven't really recorded in, like, three weeks. Yeah. Because uh, I'm blaming my six-month-old for getting everybody sick. Except Kim. Kim has... When we got together, she had a really weak immune system. She would get sick for, like, a day or two. Mm. Real often. But this time, she, mm. like, started to get a fever, started to feel kind of lousy, and she was just like, no. Just, like, willpower. She was like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. But she just didn't get sick. <laughs> it, it makes a difference, man. It really does. I mean... What do they say? The placebo effect effect is effective 20% of the time? Yeah. 20%? That's a lot. That's a lot, Ryan. 20%. Yeah. 20%. So, yeah, keep thinking positive thoughts and you will manifest your own health. Intention, man. We talk about it all the time. All the time. All right. Well, let's get into this. You want to tell them what they need to know? Yeah. Oh, man. It feels like it's been a while. But Man, when maybe. I do the audio, I might have to drop your voice an octave or two. You're... you're you got kind of a higher pitch thing going on today. I think yeah, that's all right. your vocal cords are constricted a bit. Probably. <laughs> that's why I've got a hot drink. Trying to, like, relax everything, but I don't know. I can try to do that Charlie Sheen voice when he was, like, all messed up on drugs. Well, after he quit. you mean his total life story? <laughs> I, no, just, I haven't heard his voice on drugs. Or off of drugs, actually, probably. Yeah, he had this, like, really weird rasp going on, but he had, like, figured out a way to talk through it, and it was really distinctive sounding. And when I was sick a couple <laughs> years ago, my voice sounded like that, too. Oh, that's awesome. Anyway, though, if you guys want to help us out, as always, the best way to do that is to interact with the show through whatever platform you use. Like, subscribe, leave ratings. You know, you can even comment on our mispronunciations, which we're going to have quite a few of. And all of that helps us in our battle against the AI overlords. But if you want to tell us what you think or what you want to hear or what you think of my voice the way it currently is, you can do that at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can check out what we're selling at crypticpodcaststore.com. And you can support us on buymeacoffee.com. Crypti PI, PI, yeah. PI. Private investigators. Cool. <laughs> um, are you sure you don't have a balloon back there filled with helium or something? I'm looking. Pretty sure. I don't see anything. All right. How well, weird do I sound to you? You'll just have to hear it. You'll just have to hear it. It's good. Just say, um, let me get you, I don't know, just something, a random thing to say like, oh, I don't know, we're the chipmunks. All right. Well, let's get into what we're talking about tonight. The Dyatlov Pass incident. And you all may have heard about this, but we're going to get into some relatively new, I would say, findings. But findings make it sound official and conclusive, which I don't think it really is. But let's just talk about it. In 1959, a group embarked on a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in the Soviet Union. The Ural Mountains, also known simply as the Urals, are a significant mountain range in Eurasia that extends north and south 
through Russia, spanning from the Arctic Ocean coast to the Ural River in northwestern Kazakhstan. The mountain range serves as a conventional boundary between the continents of Europe and Asia. The Urals have an average altitude ranging from 3,300 feet to 4,300 feet. And then they've also got Mount Narodnia being the highest peak at 6,214 feet. The Ural Mountains are rich in natural resources, including metal ores, coal, and various precious and semi-precious stones. So this is an area that people want to take care of because they're getting a lot of stuff from that area. It's kind of a cash cow for Russia and probably Kazakhstan, maybe some other countries. But since the 18th century, the mountains have played a significant role in contributing to the mineral sector of the Russian economy. The region is a major center for metallurgy and heavy industry production in Russia. And I tried to get Ryan to take uh, Russian language lessons, but he said, yet. So it's over. The Ural Mountains have both <laughs> geographical and economic importance, serving as a prominent feature of the Russian landscape and playing a crucial role in the nation's industrial and mineral sectors. So just kind of wanted to give you a background. Uh, some people will claim that this mountain that these people perished on was called Dead Mountain. And that sounds very uh, creepy, very scary. You know, it's got a scary name. It's Dead Mountain. Yeah, it's a great but, name for a ghost story setting. Yeah, but in reality, the reason it's called Dead Mountain is because nothing lives there. There's not, you know, herds of caribou or elk or reindeer or anything like that. It's just nothing lives there. So it's not dead in the sense of you're going to die if you go there. It's dead in the sense that there's really nothing of importance there to the uh, local Mansi tribe and, you know, obviously to Russia. All right. So let's get into it. Led by Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student, the expedition was named after the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and possibly dispatched by the local Komsomol organization. The group, initially comprising eight men and two women, aimed to reach the far northern regions of the Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River with the goal of reaching a Torton, a challenging mountain, 10 kilometers north of the eventual incident site. The team, consisting of experienced grade two hikers with ski tour expertise, planned to earn grade three certification upon completing the journey, the highest certification in the Soviet Union at the time. Excuse me, got a little tickle in my throat. If you get me sick over this podcast, I'm coming for you. Just to put this out there, we're not talking about Ryan and I going to a forest in Missouri with marked trails and rangers that can come and help us if we need it. And yeah, benches you know, and the little dispensers for like dog bags and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, the spare tire, uh, mountain bike tire tubes that they have hanging out. We're talking about people that are experienced in orienteering, which is, as you and I have talked about, kind of lost on 
the youngsters out there. They have no yeah. idea which way they're driving. They have no idea how to read a map. They know how to use uh, Google Maps, but they don't know how to read a paper map. These people were basically going to prove that they were some of the most badass explorers out there because where they're going through is going to earn them basically a title of like, dude, you made it through here and you're one of the few groups of people that have ever done it. You're some of the best in the Soviet Union. Boom, here's your gold star. The route approved by the Sflerdlovsk City Route Commission was considered Category 3 and undertaken in February, the most challenging time for traversal. Don't know why they would pick February. Maybe we'll get into it. On January 23, 1959, the Dyatlov Group was issued their route book, listing their course following the Number 5 Trail. Again, we're talking about imaginary paths here. We're not talking about, you know, walking on wooden steps that were built with big bright orange flags to show you where you were going. We're talking about a route that had been done before, but extremely difficult and not marked. Yeah, it's like elevation grades and stuff like that. Like, here's a valley you're going to go through, but not here's the path. Here's the sidewalk. Here's the gravel you're going to follow. Right, yeah. And we're not talking... Uh, we're we're talking 1959 Soviet Union, so we're talking about wool coats and you know leather boots and stuff like that. We're not talking about heading down to your local REI or whatever and spending five thousand dollars on you know just amazing gear that you know a, a jacket may weigh eighth of a pound and keep you warm through you know negative 30 or whatever i mean there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there just go to northface.com and spend ten thousand dollars and you'll be good but they didn't have that back then the swerdlovsk city committee of physical culture and support and sport approved the participation of 11 people with zemian zolotryov being the 11th member previously certified for some similar expedition so he had already been approved uh, let's just say Semyon had already been approved the group departed from Sverdlovsk city now Yekaterinburg on the same day they received the route book so do you want to tell us who the members were uh I actually think it might well yeah we can but we'll talk about their fates later so we'll need to remember okay. to circle back to this uh so we got Alexander this is the easiest I could make their names so <laughs> I appreciate it. Godspeed, my friend. No, no Cyrillic letters. No. <laughs> so we've got Alexander Sergeyevich Kalevatov, who was 24. Yuri Alexeyevich Krivoneshenko. <laughs> I'm probably pretty close. Igor Alexkevich Dyatlov. Yudmila Alexandrovna Dubinina. Yuri was 23. Igor was 23. Yudmila was 20. Nikolai... Vladimirovich Thibault Prignol was 23. Rustim Vladimirovich Slobodin is 23. Alexander Alexeyevich Zolotorov, which you just said, is 38. That's the experienced person who'd already done a route like this before. Hmm. Or was it had done this exact one? Either I way. think that he had done this exact one, but he had okay. been approved at least for sure for yeah, um, and grade was three. Was of that 
Yeah, and was of that grade where the others were not. They were trying to get there. Yeah. Yuri Nikolaevich Doroshenko, 21. Yuri Yefimovich Yudin, 21. Um, who, well, we'll get into it, but spoiler, this is one of the people that did not die on the expedition. Zinaida Alexeyevna Kolmogorova, 22. And it's Zinaida and Lyudmila, who are the women yeah. on this, in case you're not familiar with Russian names and genders and all that sort of thing. But that is that is our expedition group. So we've got, I mean, the oldest person is 24, yeah. other than the 38-year-old who's more experienced than has done this before. So I don't know. I mean, maybe the Soviets were a little bit different, but I know what I was like at 23 and 24. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I don't know that I would have taken this seriously enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's anyway. a great point. You're you're still invincible at 21, 22, yeah. 24. So, yeah, yeah. You're, just, you're like, well, if it's, I'll just shiver. And it'll be fine. Yeah. Right. Like, you won't die. So we, we should say that this is kind of, I guess, maybe a little touchy. But remembering everybody's name... And everything about them is not crucial to the story. We certainly don't want to gloss over, you know, the people that perished on this trip. And and we're not trying to make light or say that they don't matter or anything like that. We're simply saying that their names are very difficult and we're not going to be using three names to describe everybody. But we're not going to be saying, you know, 18 syllable names every time we refer to someone. And I don't think it's crucial to the story to know exactly each person and exactly what happened to them. Not that it's not important to know that it happened to one of the hikers or two of the hikers or whatever, just that the names going along with them are not, if you can't grasp that, it's okay. It's not going to ruin the podcast. So, all right. So let's get into the expedition. So the group reached Ivdel, the central town in the northern province of Svedlovsk Oblast, by train on January 25th of 1959. From there, they traveled by truck to Vizai, the last inhabited settlement to the north where they spent the night. In preparation for their hike, the skiers bought and consumed loaves of bread to maintain their energy levels, so like carbs. Yeah, well, they didn't have... Something like this would would do carbs. I mean, they wouldn't talk about it this way. They're not being cornered by people at a supplement superstore and being told to do it, but but they know it's going to give them energy. And, and again, that's what was available. There wasn't, you know, mountain dew that they took with them for energy or, you know, these little uh, energy bars that are packed in miniature solar blankets or anything like that. They had bread, and, you know, presumably they would melt the snow as they went for, for drinks. But anyway, go ahead. On January 27th, the group commenced their journey towards Goro Otorton. A day later, Yuri Yudin, facing health issues, including rheumatism and a congenial heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain. So we had said one of them uh, survived, and this was the one. He kind of ducked out early and lucky yeah. him, I suppose. 
So the remaining nine members continued their trek. Diaries and cameras found at their last campsite allowed tracking of their route until the day before the incident. By January 31st, the group reached the edge of a highland area preparing for climbing. So really getting into the mountains. Yeah. They stored surplus food and equipment in a wooded valley for the return trip. The following Smart. day, they moved through a pass, intending to camp on the opposite side. However, worsening weather conditions, including snowstorms and reduced visibility, led them off course towards the top of Kolat Siaklu. However, worsening weather conditions, including snowstorms and reduced visibility, led them off course towards the top of Kolat Siaklu. Realizing their mistake, they decided to set up camp on the mountain slope instead of descending 1.5 kilometers to a forested area that would have provided shelter. Yudin speculated, this is Yuri Yudin, the one who ducked out, that Dyatlov may have prioritized maintaining altitude or wanted to practice camping on the mountain slope. Mm -hmm. So, acknowledging that they should not have been camping at that high of an altitude, that they probably should have gone down that kilometer and a half to a more sheltered, protected area in one of these Yeah, stores. you would want the trees around you to, you know, break wind. You know, not farting, of course, but to <laughs> as a windbreak because you don't, yeah. you know, they didn't have, again, we're probably talking about canvas tents. We're not talking about these, you know, sleeping like bags that you can buy that are like, yes, 75 below, you'll be fine. And I just wanted to point out to you that uh, Kolat Siakal means dead mountain. Upon the group's failure to send the expected telegram by February 12th, concerns grew. And that's a hell of a job if, you know, you're a telegram dude. They're like, hey, um, we've got a telegram. <laughs> you need to go up to Dead Mountain, 17 kilometers into the wilderness, 8 kilometers up the side of a mountain, and get this telegram. It's like... It would have to be a singing telegram, right? Like he'd come back singing, rah, rah, Rasputin, they are on the mountain. <laughs> All right. However, it wasn't until February 20th that the traveler's relatives insisted on a rescue operation. The Institute had mobilized the first rescue groups composed of volunteer students and teachers, and later the military and police forces joined, deploying planes and helicopters for the search. So I have to imagine that flying a helicopter in these mountains has to be extremely difficult. And, and I know you can say, well, they could go, you know, 5,000 feet up or, you know, 10,000 feet up or whatever. But it's got to be difficult, especially for, you know, a, a, what would have been like a Huey in 1959, something like that up there flying around with the wind gusts and all that good stuff. But I do think it's interesting too, that they're like, Oh yeah, we need help. And then they're like, Oh, well we'll send some teachers and some volunteers. And then eventually the police are like, okay, we will help you search. I, I don't know. I wonder what cops do a lot of times, man. Like, I don't know what they were doing. That was so important. They couldn't search for, you know, all these university students that were, lost on this mountain but yeah in any case on february 26 searchers discovered the group's abandoned and severely damaged tent on dead mountain 
The scene perplexed investigators as the tent had been cut open from the inside and all belongings, including shoes, were left behind. Following footprints left by individuals in socks, single shoes, or barefoot, the searchers tracked the prints to the edge of a nearby wood one and a half kilometers to the northeast where they were covered by snow. Under a Siberian pine at the forest edge, the remains of a small fire were found along with the first two bodies, Krivonoshenko and Doroshenko, barefoot and in underwear. Broken branches up to five meters high suggested someone had climbed the tree, possibly searching for the camp. Dyatlov, Kalmogorova, and Slobodin were discovered at various distances from the tree, appearing to be attempting to return to the tent. The search for the remaining four travelers took over two months, with their bodies finally found on May 4th under four meters of snow in a ravine further into the woods from the pine tree. Three of them were better dressed, indicating the use of clothing from those who had died earlier. Dubinina, for instance, wore Kravonyshenko's burned, torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. So this sounds really weird, right? Like when you come across something like this, and we haven't even gotten into this, you know, the dirty little details yet, but when you start hearing stuff like this, it's just really bizarre that basically as far as what we know so far, they were probably all asleep in this tent and something scared them so bad that they cut their way out of the tent from the inside instead of going through, you know, the flap. Uh, Presumably some would have run out the flap and, and others would have cut their way out, but that would seem to indicate something inside the tent that they're trying to get away from more so in my opinion, more so than something from the outside. You know, I'm a somewhat experienced hiker. You know, I know how to blaze a trail if I need to find my way back, that sort of thing. But I think most people's instinct would be to hunker down in the tent, right? Pull the covers up over their eyes and hope whatever it is doesn't get them. Or, yeah, at least pretend that there's nothing in the tent, nothing worth coming in for, yeah. So we've got... Alexander, I'll just go through what they died from, because we do have the official okay uh, causes along with the names. Sounds good. So we've got Alexander Kalevatov, the 24-year-old. He died of hypothermia officially. We have Yuri Kravonyshenko and Yuri Doroshenko, 23 and 21 respectively, both also listed as dying of hypothermia. Igor Dyatlov, hypothermia. Lyudmila, the one of the females, she's 20. I think she's the youngest one on this expedition. Uh, internal bleeding from severe chest trauma. Nikolai mm. was 23. Fatal skull injury is his listed cause of death. Rustem Slobodin, uh, the 23-year-old, died of hypothermia. We've got Alexander Zolotorov. Zolotorov? The 38-year-old who kind of knew what he was doing, also with severe chest trauma. And then you have Zinaida uh, Kolmogorova, also hypothermia. So we've got three, four, five, six hypothermias, two severe chest traumas, and a fatal skull injury. And then you've got Yuri Yudin, who 
wound up having to leave early because of health issues. Hmm. But what we do have is a break. We'll tell you about the investigation of Dyatlov Pass after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Do you want to keep going and tell them about the investigation? Sure. So the legal inquest into the Dialog Pass incident began pretty much immediately after the discovery of the first five bodies. The initial medical examination suggested that hypothermia was the cause of death, with no apparent injuries contributing to the fatalities. Slobodin had a small skull crack, but it was not deemed fatal. However, the narrative shifted with the examination of the four bodies found in May. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries, including major skull damage for Thibault Brignol and major chest fractures for Dubinina and Zolotoryov. So, we mentioned them before, but this source likes to refer to people by last names. (laughs) (laughs) Boris Vosrozdeni noted that the force required for such injuries would be comparable to a car crash and there were no external wounds associated with the fractures, indicating a high level of pressure. So like a crushing force, maybe. Mm -hmm. The four bodies found in a running stream had additional soft tissue damage to their head and face. Dubinina, for instance, was missing her tongue, eyes, part of the lips, facial tissue, and a skull fragment. So Latariov had missing eyeballs, and Kolevitov was missing his eyebrows. Mm. The forensic expert VA... Denny, who we just talked about before, concluded that these injuries occurred post-mortem due to the bodies being in a stream. So potentially animal. some kind of animal or just normal decomposition from being in water. Well, you know, people talk about that being such a strange thing. And it is strange. But it's also what we see when bodies are submerged that you know, fish and stuff like that, as gross as it is, gross as it sounds, will go in and eat some of the soft tissue. Well, what's the soft tissue? The eyes, maybe the tongue, if it's a bigger, stronger fish or a turtle or or whatever. I don't know what kind of wildlife is active in the streams there in, you know, February, but it, as weird as it sounds and as creepy as it makes the story sound, it's really not that much out of the ordinary. Yeah. Initial speculation about an attack by the indigenous Mansi people was dismissed as the hikers' footprints were the only ones visible and there was no evidence of a struggle. Despite extremely low temperatures ranging from negative 25 to negative 30 Celsius or negative 13 to negative 22 Fahrenheit, with a storm, the deceased were found only partially dressed. Some had only one shoe, while others only wore socks, and some were wrapped in ripped clothes, possibly taken from those already dead. Journalists reporting on the available parts of the inquest files claim that it states, now again, we're talking Soviet Russia, so this is not, um, this is not going to be stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not going to be probably ever you know, released like, oh yeah, this is what we actually found. So they've, they stated these journalists 
that six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby on Dead Mountain apart from the nine travelers. The tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. So there's not going to be drag marks. There's going to be separate prints for everybody, or, or at least, what do we say, nine distinctive prints? or Yeah, or, sets yes. of tracks. Mm -hmm. So some levels of radiation were found on one of the victim's clothing. Hmm. To dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansi people, Vazros Denny stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings, quote, because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged, end quote. Release documents contain no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs. There were no survivors. At the time, the official conclusion was that the group members had succumbed to a compelling natural force and the inquest officially ended in May 1959 due to the absence of a guilty party with the files being sent to a secret archive. Why to a secret archive? Yeah, hmm. I'm imagining the warehouse from Indiana Jones. <laughs> in 1997, it was revealed that negatives from Kravonashenko's camera were kept in the private archive in of investigator Lev Nikitich Ivanov, later donated to the Dyatlov Foundation. The diaries of the hiking party became part of Russia's public domain in 2009. On April 12, 2018, Zolotaryov's remains were exhumed, leading to contradictory results. Experts agreed injuries resembling those from a car accident and DNA analysis showed no similarity to living relatives. He was exhumed. They found injuries resembling those from a car accident, but DNA analysis showed that it may have been the wrong person that was exhumed. I think that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, what I'm what I'm finding is that it's not who they think it is. So there you go. All right, so Komsomolskaya Pravda a Russian tabloid that falls on the scale somewhere between Daily Mail and the Sun Empire did a recent exhumation of Zolotarev's grave and a DNA analysis. The conclusion was the man in the grave was the same man who was depicted in the photos prior to death. His injuries match the autopsy report, but his DNA does not match that of Zolotarev's female relatives using mitochondrial DNA. The whole exhumation was apparently initiated after it turned out that official burial records never stated that any Zolotarev was buried at that particular cemetery, and as a follow-up to rumors that people who knew Zolotarev personally claimed he didn't have tattoos, that this body did have. Now there's a lot of internal drama surrounding the exhumation and whether or not the DNA test was accurate or whether this, or whether this newspaper is trustworthy in the first place. Looks like there's some speculation that this one member of the crew might not have been who he was supposed to be. Yeah, so who was he? That's interesting. I mean, he didn't make it out either, so it's not like he was just a, an assassin sent there to kill everybody. I don't but, know. Yeah, one of, the, one of the theories that I read says 
maybe he was. Maybe somehow he initiated whatever caused this whole thing, and either the real one was rescued, the real Alexander was rescued, and this other person was put in his place and Hmm. injured in a way that was similar to some of the others, or who knows. I mean, we know how bad some of the record-keeping was with the Soviet Union, so it's not the most surprising thing in the world to go into this and find that, you know, what, that... His name was absent from a list of those buried at that cemetery, Ivanovskoya. Yeah, it does It does open up some questions. So basically they're saying that this guy that was exhumed may not be the right guy. Or well, it was... he may be the right guy that was on the expedition, but under false pretenses that right. you know he, under... he had another name. But yeah, that seems really weird, though. Like wrong identity. I mean, that seems really weird to me because, you know, I know you're prepared to walk away from your life with millions in offshore bank accounts and stuff like that. But, like, uh, who says I need to hide my identity or become someone else? I'm going to become this guy that's about to go on a fucking life or death expedition across horrific weather and, you know, terrible mountain rain. No, you're going to be like, well, I'm going to be uh, Steve down at the bathhouse with a glass of Sauvignon and a cigar. You know what I mean? Like it, it would be weird. <laughs> Come on in ladies. Water's hot. <laughs> it, it, it would be extremely odd if, if he was someone else and he just so happened to be like, yeah, under my new name, I'm going to join these people on this expedition. I mean, what he could be just at, like a thrill seeker who knew of this other person and was like, Oh, I could totally come on this and help you guys out because I've done this before. Yeah. If there were no like well-documented photos of the person or you know, if their forms of ID relax, but it is like a whole new element to the mystery. Like there's so much already. Yeah. I mean, we're talking injuries resembling what you might see in a car accident. And then one of the members is not actually related to anybody in his family. <laughs> yeah. And there was radiation. Yeah. Radiation on one of the person's clothes. So weird. In February 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation, focusing on three possible explanations. So, again, is this scientific? You focus on three explanations, an avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane. The possibility of foul play was discounted. A hurricane, Ryan. What do you think of that? I don't know, man. Sounds like BS to me. Because, again, I would think your best bet would probably be to hunker down. Yeah. Not run out in your underwear. Yeah. It's just such a bizarre story. And I just don't think you should go in and say, well, we're going to focus on these explanations. I think you should go in with a completely open mind. And, And I don't think you should go in and be like, well, it was probably aliens and Bigfoot and Russian mobsters and and all that but you should go in and say well let's let's see where the evidence leads us and this evidence is really difficult but 
when there's bodily injuries and unexplainable things like the radiation, why would you discount foul play? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Now, maybe these people in the stream, yeah, maybe it was fish that came and ate their eyeballs out, or maybe it was a message to somebody, you know, we don't know a whole lot about these kids' backgrounds, but just that they were, uh, at least one of them was a journalism student and they were all in school except for the older guy. And I don't know, is it possible that, you know, they're, journalism wasn't something that uh, the Russian government found appealing. They're like, hmm, yeah, these guys are going on a hike through the mountains, and when they get back, they're going to write bad stories about me. Go get them, Yuri. We need more Yuris. All right. Tell us about some related reports. Well, Yuri Kunsinich, which is dangerous to pronounce. Yeah, I'm not saying that again. Who was 12 years old at the time and who later became the head of the <laughs> Yekaterinburg-based Yadlov Foundation attended five of the hikers' funerals. He recalled that their skin had a, quote, deep brown tan, end quote. But I feel like that's another thing you see in a lot of these mystery shows when they find a body that's been in nature for a long mm-hmm. time is kind of a natural tanning process can occur, especially when the skin is, when all the moisture is wicked out. Anyway, not to argue with this guy, another group of hikers about 50 kilometers south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres mm. in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in Ivdel, which is uh, one of the places they had stopped in adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March of 1959. Uh, And these were seen by various independent witnesses, including the Meteorology Service and the military. Those sightings uh, were not noted in the 1959 investigation, and the various witnesses came forward years later. So there's always the potential that, that people might have come up with something or embellished a natural phenomena or some environmental factor way after the fact to try to explain something. And honestly, it kind of ties back to the joke Jay made at the beginning of the show that sometimes you remember things that weren't really there or that didn't really happen. If you're asked to remember details so many times, eventually you can remember it without ever having actually seen it or experienced it. So it's always a possibility. In the aftermath of the Dyatlov Pass incident, Anatoly Gushin summarized his research in the book the Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives in 1990, which is quite a title. Great, yeah. Kind of title you don't get anymore. Mm-mm. While criticized for focusing on the speculative theory of a Soviet secret weapon experiment, the publication stimulated public discussion, particularly in paranormal circles. Former police officer Lev Nikitich Ivanov, who led the 1959 inquest and who we mentioned earlier, Revealed in a 1990 article that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident, which is why they suggested a hurricane in the middle of the winter in the mountains, <laughs> yes. which maybe that happens there. I don't know. It seems well really odd here's, to me. Here's the thing. I, I, I think that the use of the term hurricane is going to throw a lot of people off. I, I think what they're saying is there were hurricane force winds that mm. were there, it, it, but... To le- I mean, that's how it was presented. 
as it could be a hurricane. It wasn't presented as it was hurricane force winds. Weather patterns as a result of... Yeah, it, it was just left at that. And it's like, well, maybe we could just say there's real strong winds because people, I think, rightfully associate hurricanes with, you know, large bodies of water. So this officer also acknowledged receiving orders from high-ranking officials to dismiss claims of seeing flying spheres. So we mentioned the spheres earlier. Mm-hmm. In 2000, a regional television company produced a documentary film, The Mystery of Dyatlov Pass. Yekaterinburg writer Anna Matveyeva then published a docudrama novella of the same name, using broad quotations from the official case files, victim diaries, and interviews with searchers. Despite its fictional narrative, Matveyevna's work remains a significant source of documentary materials about the incident, gradually published on a web forum for researchers. The Dyatlov Foundation, established in 1999 in Yekaterinburg, with the assistance of Ural State Technical University and led by Yuri Kunzevich, aims to continue investigating the case and maintain the Dyatlov Museum to preserve the memory of the deceased hikers. On the 1st of July 2016, a memorial plaque was inaugurated in Solokamsk in the Urals Perm region, dedicated to Yuri Yudin, the sole survivor of the expedition group who passed away in 2013 at the age of 75. So he... He did well. Actually, yeah, he made it a pretty long time. So it, And it also suggests to me that there wasn't much of a reason to be after this group specifically as like a whole. Because mm-hmm. nobody ever came for him. Mm-hmm. If they were trying to get rid of this group, he would not have made it to 75. Yeah, unless it was just one of the people in the group that yeah, it could be. Could be, they were yeah. going after. And he's like, fuck it, just... I got to kill everybody. Yeah, or it could be that it's part of a weapons experiment and they just got on purpose or by accident this group of people who were in the wrong place at the right time maybe for whatever they were doing. But we will talk about more explanations after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. All right. Let's, yeah, let's get into this one and we'll get deeper into it as we go. But the first one is an avalanche. Um, I, I should say, and I'm not speaking for Ryan in particular, but I don't really know a lot about avalanches. I, I know there's a lot of science behind it. I know there's a lot of different types of avalanches. I know that there's weird things that occur that, you know, you may not expect. Like, I don't think people realize how loud an avalanche is. Like, the the sound is deafening. I've seen videos of people who have basically been consumed by an avalanche and somehow survived. But there's there's a lot of odd things that happen in avalanches. Probably ball lightning and swamp gas as well. So in July 2020, Andrei Kirikov, deputy head of the Urals Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office, quite a title, declared an avalanche as the, quote, official cause of death for the Dyatlov group in 1959. 
Independent computer simulations and analysis by Swiss researchers also support this theory. According to Douglas Preston in The New Yorker, the scenario suggests that the skiers, experienced but perhaps misplacing their tent, took rational actions in response to the perceived threat of an avalanche. The loud cracks and rumbles of the falling snow slab would have prompted them to conduct an emergency evacuation to a safer location, take shelter in the woods, start a fire, and even dig a snow cave. The theory suggests that their expertise may have ironically contributed to their demise as they were acutely aware of the dangers of avalanches. And I'm impressed that they were able to start a fire, you know, like unless they had fire building materials on them, uh, you know, at least matches. I mean, maybe that's a good thing to do is just to always, you know, even if you're sleeping in your tent to always have fire starting stuff on you. Yeah. I mean, there are, I know at military stores, I used to find like, like, I forget what they called them, but they were matches that were meant to light in any condition. Mm -hmm. Like the part of it that has like sulfur and stuff on it is huge. It's real thick. So it's like, you can light it anywhere, but you have to have something else to be able to light. Yeah. yeah, What's the fuel source that they have that's dry and ready to, I don't know. I agree. It's like if they were so unprepared that they ran out with torn clothing and their underwear and socks or bare feet, what did they can start I, a fire with? Can I tell you? Yeah. They started a fire with their clothes. It's the only thing they had that would burn. So I see you looking around. But, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, me and Ryan are on a hike in the middle of a snowstorm and, you know, he dies from some unknown force and i'm like fuck i gotta start a fire give me those clothes give me that cryptique t-shirt yeah shave that beard off too and use the little (laughs) hairs to start a fire they find that i that i committed suicide by hitting myself in the back of the head with a rock yeah 48 times yeah Yeah. you know when you go hiking with the clintons (laughs) (laughs) not sure if they were in power at this time but nothing would shock me but i don't understand how that theory suggests that their expertise may have contributed to their demise unless it's saying that they had the balls to camp anywhere because they thought they could handle it you know what i mean anyway well give us another explanation all right so man i should have done this one the original (laughs) explanation while Mm -hmm. reviewing a sensationalist yeti hypothesis Skeptic author Benjamin Radford proposes an avalanche as a more plausible explanation. According to this theory, the group woke up in a panic, cut their way out of the tent, either because of an avalanche covering the entrance or fear of an imminent avalanche and being buried. Poorly clothed from sleep, they ran to the nearby woods for safety where trees could slow oncoming snow. In the darkness, they became separated into groups, with one starting a fire while others attempted to return to the tent for clothing. However, the cold proved fatal, and they froze before locating the tent. Some clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but a group of four experienced a severe avalanche buried under four meters of snow. Deep. So, like, 12, yeah, 12 feet. I mean, think about it at the bottom of, like, the diving section of your local swimming pool. Yeah. That's usually 12 to 14 feet. Radford speculates that Dubonina's missing tongue may be attributed to scavengers or predation, which we kind of talked about earlier. And I guess that makes sense, because I was thinking about the clothing thing, starting the fire with clothing, because I was not aware of that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you the thought process if they're rational would have to be we need this fire right now more than we need these clothes to stay warm and survive later yeah so it might literally just be it is dark we're missing members of the group I'm going to just take my shirt off or whatever, my jacket. I'm going to burn that to create some light and bring them mm-hmm. back over here so we have a better chance of being together to survive this. So that yeah. actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What Do you doesn't want, I... really make sense, though, is that they're... Well, we're, we're, we're going to get into it anyway. The fact that well, there doesn't seem to have actually been an avalanche, at least where the tent was. We're not going to get into the Bigfoot theory a whole lot or Yeti theory, but... Let's talk about it for a second because this is cryptique and mm-hmm. I do love me some Bigfoot. Uh, there, butter. there is a uh, picture that you guys have probably all seen and I'm sorry we didn't have slides for you today. We're, we're working on getting that up. but I'll, it, it, I'll try to put some in when I put the video out. Oh, perfect. I'll yeah, try to just yeah. pop them up on the screen. Oh, that's a great idea. So there's this uh photograph now they all had cameras and they were all film cameras they didn't have iphones they didn't have you know the the new digital canon eos rebel or whatever they had regular cameras for back then i'm sure they were probably decent cameras consumer grade cameras but probably decent but there is a picture of a humanoid shape kind of peeking out from behind a tree Uh now you know, if you've listened to our Bigfoot episodes or you're into it at all, you know that they do the tree peeking, right? Peek out from behind a tree. So that's behavior that is consistent with what is reported amongst witnesses of Bigfoot, Yeti, Yaren, Yowie, whatever. Um, I don't think it is, but it's an interesting photo. And I do think that there is something that we need to mention. We talked about these orange orbs, right? And you and I have kind of covered Bigfoot so far from the wood ape theory. Like it's a mm-hmm. a relic hominid, right? A, an ancient human or maybe a Nephilim, something like that. But when we get into reports of what people in the Bigfoot community like to call like the woo theory, like, Ooh, mm-hmm. it's scary. Uh, is that Bigfoot some sort of interdimensional being? And often very, now I've listened to 1500 eyewitness ear witness accounts of Bigfoot and an alarming number of them contain stories of like orange basketball sized orbs that appear in the area about the same time that these creatures appear. So am I saying it was Bigfoot? No, not saying that, but I'm saying it's a theory that should be explored a little bit. And then again, we have the fact that these creatures use infrasound. Infrasound creates what? Panic, stress, anxiety. You don't know what to do. You just have to get out of that area. So those while, you know, you like to talk about Occam's razor, you, you know, to consider that you have to believe that yetis exist, which I do. And I think it's something that's just discounted as being totally stupid and irrelevant. And I don't think that we should do that on this show. I, I think that there is room for it, the, po- the extreme possibility of a Yeti having something to do with this. Now, maybe 
this Yeti climb to the top of the mountain and push this avalanche down on him. But he's involved somehow. So anyway, that's that's the Yeti theory. If you guys are into that, there's a, a lot of stuff out there on it. I think that what we're talking about is a little bit more realistic. But we like to have fun, too. And we all know Bigfoot likes to have fun. So you want to see what I got while, while we're here? Um, let me show you one of my Christmas presents my nephew got me. Bigfoot air fresheners. Nice. You know how bad your shit has to stink for Bigfoot to make it smell better? <laughs> That's anyway. What does it smell right. like? Is it scented like skunk ape? It, it's pine saw, brother. It is straight up pine saw. That's a disappointment. Which, yeah, you know, you just hang it from your rearview mirror and leave it in there for a couple days and your car will be good. So, all right. We ready to move on to the yeah. contradictory evidence? Yeah. All right. So this is going to be some contradictory evidence that challenges the avalanche theory. So, and this is a an earlier investigation that um, came up with, with these theories. And then we're going to get into another one another avalanche theory that happens later on. So the lack of obvious avalanche signs, the location of the incident showed no apparent signs of an avalanche, such as the specific patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. Bodies found within a month were covered by a shallow layer of snow. And if a strong avalanche had occurred, these bodies would likely have been swept away, causing different injuries and damaging the tree line. What's next? Uh, no previous reports of avalanche conditions. Over 100 expeditions have been conducted in the region since the incident, with none reporting conditions that could lead to an avalanche. Modern terrain-related physics analysis suggests that the location was unlikely for such an event. Dangerous conditions in another nearby area were observed during April and May, but not in February when the incident took place. So if it... If it only happens in April and May, it can only happen in April and May, right? Not in February. I mean, well, I listen, think they're I, talking about maybe in that year. Mm -hmm. That's my assumption. Like in that year, the the weather wasn't right for it until later. Mm. But I don't know. If that's the case, that makes sense. But if they're just saying that it normally only happens during this time of year, that doesn't really hold water with me. Hmm. Terrain analysis. An analysis of the terrain and slope indicated that even if a specific avalanche had occurred, its path would have bypassed the tent. The tent collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. And I do have, and I, I think I may have sent you all the slides I had anyway, but I do have kind of an illustration of this specific type of an event. So. Yeah, yeah, I have that. I'll be able to put that up on screen. All right, what's next? So the specific experience of Dyatlov and Zolotoryov, they both were experienced, and when I say experience, I mean like their level of experience as being outdoorsmen, basically. Mm. They're both experienced skiers. They would not likely have chosen camp in the path of a potential avalanche. They would have been able to recognize that this might be where this kind of thing could happen. Uh, Dyatlov in particular was an experienced skier, and Zolotaryov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. So again, I mean, we mentioned before how young a lot of the people on this were, mm -hmm. but they're not inexperienced. I mean, 
there are a lot of people who are really, really proficient in things who are very young because they've done it from a young age. And it sounds like that's at least a couple of these folks. Absolutely. They're not less Stroud, but they're pretty darn close. Right. Survivor man. Mm-hmm. Inconsistent footprint patterns. The footprint patterns leading away from the tent did not align with the behavior of individuals, let alone a group of nine people running in panic from a real or imagined danger. All footprints were consistent with individuals walking at a normal pace toward the woods. That's really interesting. And I don't know how deep the snow was where they that they were walking through. And it may have just been one of those things where, I mean, depending on where you live, we've had deep snow here in Missouri a few times in our lifespans where you can't really run, right? I mean, you can take big steps. Uh, sometimes maybe taking big, long steps is faster than trying to sprint. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't necessarily take that as, you know, fact that they weren't running, um, and that they were just walking. So I don't know. That seems weird to me. All All right. right. So in 2015, there was another investigation, a comprehensive review of the 1959 investigations evidence took place from 2015 to 2019 conducted by experienced investigators from the investigative committee of the Russian Federation in response to the family's request. This re-examination confirmed the avalanche theory, adding crucial details. The ICRF, the Investigative Committee, Russian Federation, ICRF, investigators, including an experienced alpinist, highlighted the severe weather conditions on the night of the tragedy with hurricane-force winds of 20 to 30 meters per second, a snowstorm, and temperatures reaching as low as negative 40 Celsius, which is where Celsius and Fahrenheit cross so it's the same on both very very cold yes these conditions were not fully considered by the original 1959 investigators who arrived three weeks later when the weather had improved the events so wait a second oh go ahead i'll let you finish i was just gonna say uh go ahead we're we're gonna get into some stuff well here's the deal if they had only arrived three three weeks later how do they have any idea what the conditions were like then? Unless they had stuff set up in these mountains, then how would they even know how the weather was if they only came three weeks later? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously protocols and stuff like that that they can follow. Like, okay, well, this is generally what happens in this instant. And mm-hmm. this is generally what happens, but. I don't know. But yeah, so the here here's the way that they've reconstructed the events. So on February 1st, the group arrived at the mountain and erected a large nine-person tent on an open slope without natural barriers following heavy snowfall, strong winds, and frost. Mm -hmm. The group's activities weakened the snow base on the slope. During the night, the snowfield above the tent slowly slid down under the weight of new snow, pushing on the tent fabric starting from the entrance. The group woke up, realizing the danger, and began a panicked evacuation. With the tent entrance blocked, they escaped through a hole cut in the fabric, descending the slope to a forested area perceived as safe from the avalanche about 1,500 meters down. Due to incomplete clothing, the group split. 
I don't exactly know what they mean by that. Shirts versus skins? What? I mean, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I'm not going with you. You're naked. It, it makes no sense. Sometimes right. people just be saying stuff, dude. Two members <laughs> in their underwear and pajamas were found near a fire pit at a Siberian pine tree, confirming death from hypothermia. Three hikers, including Dyatlov, attempted to climb back to the tent, possibly to retrieve sleeping bags. They had better clothing, but still inadequate for the extreme conditions. Their bodies were found at various distances, indicating exhaustion while climbing through deep snow and extremely cold weather. So that's interesting. So mm -hmm. their bodies were found at various distances, indicating exhaustion while climbing through deep snow, but and also... They said that they they walked hmm. and they could tell that they walked by the tracks, but they also said they had to climb through deep snow. I guess they're saying that after this avalanche hit, they have to climb through deep snow, but they don't make could it very be. clear in this investigation. No. All right, go ahead. Uh, the remaining four, equipped with warm clothing and footwear, sought or attempted to build a better camping place in the forest further down the slope. Their bodies were found under several meters of snow, indicating they had fallen into a snow hole above the stream, only discovered after two months. According to the ICRF investigators, the factors contributing to the tragedy were the extremely harsh weather and group leaders' lack of experience in such conditions leading to the selection of a dangerous camping location. Following the snowslide, the group made a critical error by splitting up instead of building a temporary camp in the forest and attempting to survive the night. The negligence of the 1959 investigators, according to the ICRF, contributed to their report uh, generating more questions than answers and inspiring alternative uh, in conspiracy theories i was gonna say oh. conspiratorial but they actually say conspiracy theories yeah it's i don't know it i just feel like nothing matches up and they're just kind of saying whatever it's like well these guys were going for their uh you know grade three hiking and snow skiing and stuff like that but they just didn't know know any better well which is it yeah and then saying like well we we didn't really know they weren't considering what the weather had been like three weeks before when this mm -hmm. all happened. So we just finally looked at it now. Like, this was the weather from the whatever. Like, I guess there must have been some kind of station nearby where it was observed. But nobody thought to do that until 60 years later, basically. Come on, man. I mean, Seems that's strange. It's it's investigation 101. And, and yeah, do I think there's conspiracy theories? Yeah. But do I think there was a conspiracy? Maybe. You know, who knows for sure. Yeah. Let's get into uh, the 2021 investigation. You know what? Let's do a quick break and then we'll come back and tell you guys about that. Welcome back, Trip Keepers. In 2021, a team of physicists and, and engineers led by Alexander Puzrin and Johan Guam published a new model in communications, earth, and environment. This model demonstrated how even a relatively small slide of a snow slab on the dead mountain slope 
could cause damage to the tent and injuries consistent with those suffered by the Dyatlov team. The research provided further support for the avalanche theory, showing that the specific conditions and dynamics of a snow slab slide in the given location could explain the observed outcomes of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Several alternative theories have been proposed to explain the Dyatlov Pass incident. I'll pronounce this wrong, but catabotic wind. Mm -hmm. In 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition suggested that a violent wind, I'm not going to say the word again, could be a plausible explanation for the incident. This rare and violent wind could have made it impossible to stay in the tent, leading the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter behind the tree line. The Groom Bay have constructed two bivouac <laughs> shelters, with one collapsing and causing severe injuries to four hikers. I love that. That's great, right? They're like, well, well maybe the group, may, maybe they constructed two other bivouac shelters, with one collapsing and causing severe injuries to the four hikers. Or maybe it was that they were caught in some sort of transporter from an alien ship you know, orbiting a planet we've never heard of, and and they kind of got messed. Come on, man! You can't just keep building theories on theories on theories on theories. There's got to be some facts in there at some point. <sighs> Rant over. All right, you know, sound. Yeah. All right. Another hypothesis proposes that a Carmen vortex street created by wind around the mountain produced infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. The wind-generated infrasound may have caused discomfort and distress, prompting the hikers to leave the tent in a panic. Traumatic injuries suffered by some victims could be attributed to stumbling over the edge of a ravine in the darkness. You know, like when you trip and your eyeballs and tongue fall out? <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> You make it sound like these people are Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> I'm not the one making right. it sound that way. This is the investigation. All right, you want to move on to military tests? <laughs> sure. A speculation suggests that the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. Loud explosions could have startled the hikers, leading them to flee the tent in a panic. Some may have frozen to death while others commandeered their clothing and were fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. Reports of glowing orbs in the sky and the discovery of radioactivity on clothing are cited in support of this theory. A similar theory alleges the testing of radiological weapons pointing to the discovery of radioactivity on some of the hikers' clothing, like we said, but this is countered by the fact that radioactive dispersal would have affected all hikers and equipment uniformly. Well, does it? Because it got there somehow. Probably unlikely that they started this expedition with one of the hikers or a couple of them being covered in radioactive waste or radioactive materials. What else could it be? I mean, literally. What else could it be? What could have caused one person? How does one person respond to like Geiger counters and other people don't? Because what he, I mean, if that's what you're saying, that it would have affected all the hikers and equipment uniformly, if that's what you're saying, then you have to provide how it got there. Hmm. You know what I mean? You can't just be like, well, it would have gotten them all, so that must not be real. 
well, somebody put it in the investigation. Somebody, you know, used a Geiger counter and found that. And it was accepted as part of the investigation. So how to get there? You got to give yeah. me an idea, man, because right now you're just saying it couldn't have happened this way. Well, okay. Then how did it happen? Because you guys are willing to speculate out your ass on so much other stuff. Go ahead. How'd this happen? But they really don't. Some propose that hypothermia induced paradoxical undressing where hypothermic individuals remove their clothes due to perceived warmth could explain some of these deaths, especially the states of undress. Yeah. While six hikers died of hypothermia, others acquiring additional clothing suggests a sound enough mindset to try to add layers. Paradoxical undressing is when someone who has hypothermia at some point when I'm assuming it's when frostbite is setting in, you feel super hot, like your body feels super hot and you just take all your clothes off. You, you're not at this point, you're not in a sound state of mind anymore. You're basically being, I don't know if I want to say driven crazy by hypothermia, but I mean, I guess that's as good of a description as any yeah. if you're freezing to death and you start taking your clothes off. But that that's common. That happens mm. all the time. They find people that have died from hypothermia with coats and pants and boots, you know, taken off and just thrown aside. So that is not something that I'm going to argue with because that has been proven to be a fact. All right. Now about your boy. All right, so Keith McCloskey, a researcher who has extensively studied the DLF Pass incident, made several observations during his visit to the site in 2015. So one, there were wide discrepancies in the distances quoted between the two possible locations of the snow shelter where some of the hikers were found. One location was approximately 80 to 100 meters from the pine tree where the bodies of two hikers were found while the other suggested the location was so close to the tree that communication between the two locations would have been possible without even raising her voice. Yeah. Two, the location of the tent near the ridge was deemed too close to the spur of the ridge for any significant buildup of snow to cause an avalanche. The prevailing wind blowing over the ridge also had the effect of blowing snow away from the edge of the ridge where the tent was, further reducing the likelihood of an avalanche. Sergei Sogren had previously pointed out this aspect in 2010. Uh, and then we've got statements by Lev Ivanov's boss, Evgeny Okishev. Nice. Uh, this guy was the deputy head of the investigative department of Svedlovsk <laughs> Oblast Prosecution Office and was still alive in 2015. Okishev revealed in an interview that he had been arranging another trip to the Dyatlov Pass to further investigate the deaths of the last four bodies. It's a weird way to put that. Anyway, however, yeah. it might be like a translation thing. <laughs> yeah. However, the case was abruptly shut down by Deputy Prosecutor General Irakov from Moscow. Hmm. Uh, and there is an unusual, well, aspect with the postmortems. Okashev mentioned in his interview that Klinov, head of the Sverlovsk uh, Prosecutor's Office, was present at the first postmortems in the morgue and spent three days there. Okashev considered this highly unusual and stated that it was the only time in his experience such a presence had occurred. So unusual that this high-level guy mm -hmm. was there for the autopsy of some 
kids that were found killed on a hiking trip and spent yeah. three days. It, it is odd. And I mean, the only explanation I can think of is that this guy is like, listen, nine people died. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. They were all, they all seem to be good kids for the most part. Uh, you can see in some of the pictures that I sent you that you'll put up that they were all, they all seem to get along great. They all laughed and, yeah. and joked with each other. And, you know, they were in school, they were getting degrees. They were important citizens in Russia, even though they were, you know, students at the time, they were kind of important. And when you, you know, if it was some Mansi tribesmen, we'd never hear about it, never hear about it. But since these guys were up there, then they kind of have to show, I think, you know, it's just like when a white girl goes missing, she's on 24 hour news on every station for, you know, six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And when it's a little Mexican girl, there's, you know, a five minute story. Um, if, if they weren't important, citizens i think this wouldn't wouldn't have occurred but i think that he was also there to steer it you know what i mean like they always yeah. say that people like offenders unsubs if you will frequently inject themselves into the investigation and it could be one of those things where oh some shit did go down oh they had cameras Oh, oh, they were okay. Yeah, I'm going to oversee this one personally and make sure it comes out the way uh, the way it's it supposed to. to. Yeah. yeah. So for some more explanations, Donnie Icar, who extensively investigated the Dietlov Pass incident and created a documentary about it, dismissed several theories that were considered unlikely or discredited. An attack by the Mansi or local tribesmen. So that one's pretty much been ruled out because there's no evidence of like footprints going up to the tent when this you know incident occurred. They actually seem to be helpful with people in the area. They were not violent. Uh, there, it, it wasn't a thing where you know people were trespassing on their you know, sacred ground, you know, they let people go through there. It just was what it was. An attack by animal wildlife. No animal tracks were found, and it's unlikely that the group would abandon the relative security of the tent in the face of wildlife threats. Agreed. You want to stay away from the wolves or whatever's out there, maybe a lynx or something like that. Uh, doesn't account for Bigfoot, but, you know, maybe they just walked in the hiker's footsteps. So, yeah. or maybe there were footprints, right, leading up to the tent, and they bounced out of the tent, and then they're like, oh, shit, there's a path I can run through, you know, where the yeah. snow's been pushed down a little bit. Blown away by high winds. It's improbable that a large, experienced group would, have, would behave in a way that suggested being blown away by winds. Additionally, wind strong enough to blow away people with force would also have blown away the tent. And I agree with that. A violent dispute stemming from a romantic encounter. Eichar considers this theory highly implausible, noting that the group appeared largely harmonious and any sexual tension was limited to platonic flirtation. So that's a, a 
fancy way for him to say they weren't getting busy with each other. And like I said, when you see all these pictures, they all, I mean, they seem to be best friends. They seem to be having a great time. And I know pictures, you know, aren't always, they don't always tell the whole story, but of everything that we've seen, and I believe everything that was in their uh, diary and everything, they were getting along great. So they abstained from drugs, minimal alcohol. Uh, so that I guess they carried a probably carried a flask of medicinal alcohol. And the group's decision to abstain from cigarettes further weakens this theory. So, yeah, I mean, if you're like, dude, we can't even we can't even have cigarettes. It's it's going to be that brutal. Like you can't yeah. you, you can't have your uh, cardio impacted at all. They're probably not doing well. Maybe they found some of those uh, magic Christmas mushrooms under the pine trees out there. There you go. Could be. And then if they got in a fight, it's not going to account for the massive injuries, at, at least on one of the bodies. And it's unlikely that, in my opinion, that a group of buddies would go out and do this and then get in a fight and then everybody dies. And then some people have radioactive you know, materials, you know, on their clothing or their bodies or whatever. One of them had an eyeball, two eyeballs ripped out. And one of them had a tongue ripped out. That's a fucking serious fight, dude. Like if you hear that somebody got their tongue cut out in a fight, you're going to be like, holy shit. That's fucking savage as fuck. So, all right, we'll be back with final thoughts after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Ryan, final thoughts on Dyatlov Pass. So the fight thing could have happened. Okay. I I remember watching one of these Top Gear specials where they were trying to drive to the North Pole or whatever. Okay. They used some like sort of mostly stock but a little bit kitted out Toyota truck to do it. Mm-hmm. And they like consulted with somebody who's an expert in like hiking and camping in these extreme conditions and they talked about that being in the cold like that will like kind of fray on your you know it'll wear your nerves down and you will eventually begin to like seriously hate the person you're with huh but the whole reason we're even talking about this is how extreme and unusual these injuries are because we've got multiple experts saying that these are the level of injuries you would get from a car crash but right. somehow we're missing like the soft tissue damage. Right. So they're suggesting it's like extreme pressure, like something just came and sort of gently pushed down, like gently pushed and then just applied a ton of pressure to cause skull fractures and chest injuries and internal bleeding and all this sort of stuff. I think it would be hard to say that like the missing eyeballs and tongue and stuff are not from normal predation or just exposure, but the fighting and the fraying of nerves is a known thing. Like, I'm sure it happens. People get into fights and stuff like that, but they don't usually end up getting hit. So, like, I just don't imagine these 20-something-year-old Russian kids, like, stomp kicking each other in the chest like Leonidas <laughs> and ending up with car crash-type injuries. But you know so, what I mean, could cause that? Yeti? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know... I, 
I don't think that it was a Yeti did, that did this, but I do think that there's a lot of things that coincide with that. I do think, you know, going to your point, I had no idea about that. I, I guess I'll have to watch who I camp with in the cold. But <laughs> to your point, there's nine people too. Now, yeah. I can go out with three of my buddies. We're cool. I can go out with, you know, five of my buddies and their wives. Eh, it's fine for dinner. I don't think I want to sleep six inches from them. You know what I mean? So there could have been some hostilities, but there's a big difference in hostility. And none of these guys had records. So it's not like, you know, oh, well, yeah, I mean, Igor Dyatlov went with them and, you know, he's an experienced uh, outdoorsman and he's also murdered six people, (laughs) you know, pulled their eyeballs out or something like that. So... Yeah, I don't know. I just I feel like something happened that we're not getting. I think the military testing some kind of weapon that it was just an accident that these kids happened to be there. I think that's pretty plausible. Like mm-hmm. the light, the orbs that people were seeing, the fact that that officer says that he was told to ignore any of these reports about lights in the sky. Yeah. Because I would think it's conceivable that concussion from a blast could cause these injuries without necessarily damaging the soft tissues like you might expect. Yeah, we don't know what... something that could have happened. It's it's not like they ever came out. Well, the radioactive material might have come from there, too. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, and they never covered, like... um, It's not like the Russian government was like, well, you know, this is... I mean, even recently, we're like, yeah, we were, you know, back in the late fifties, early sixties, we were testing these concussion grenades that, you know, caused, you know, soft tissue damage, but didn't break bones or they're just being completely quiet about it. Like "Mm, Uh nothing to see here. I don't, I don't know. And that makes it, makes it likely to me or, but nobody also covers, Hey, there's people fucking hiking on this mountain and you guys are setting off, uh, you know, mines in the air hmm nobody ever says maybe that caused a fucking avalanche hey guess what when when you set off explosions near huge stacks of snow sometimes you're going to get an avalanche so even if it's the avalanche did it it could still be caused by these you know military uh parachute mines or whatever they call them is that your theory is that your thought? Um, no, nah, I'm going Bigfoot. I think that's trained I mean, I really think that's by the Russian government. People, yeah, I think that's where a lot of people go is some kind of <clears throat> creature. Just because the mindset of somebody who would cut their way out of their tent and run off in their underwear in negative 40 degree weather. It's like whatever you're getting away from has to be worse than being in your underwear in 40 degree weather. weather. (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, I would assume that, and it's never talked about in anything that I could find anyway, but I would assume that they at least had a hunting rifle. I mean, I, or at least a a sidearm. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine going on a long hiking trip, through the woods when you're going to have to find ways to feed yourself at some point 
-hmm. you're going to carry a weapon for sure. I, I mean, yeah. you know, like you and I said, we, we, fuck, we don't even go in places like this. We go where, hey, there was a mountain lion spotted there four years ago. Well, I'm bringing my gun, you know, and yeah. I know things were a lot different in Russia. Uh, you know, they may have not been licensed to carry like a sidearm but i mean you can carry as far as i know you know you can pretty much carry a rifle into the wilderness with you now they're not going to be like okay here's nine ak-47s with seven banana clips for each of you but if you say hey we're going through this dude we need to carry a 308 or a 30 odd six to try and get us a buck somewhere along the way or something like that mm -hmm. That seems totally plausible to me. So I don't know if if it was a Yeti, I think they probably would have shot at it. But we don't hear I, I found nothing about them having firearms. And that's yeah. weird to me. Well, it might have been a weight thing. I mean, it was dead. Yeah. Mountain, nothing really lived there. So they might have just been like, well, we can take like. Two or three like surplus Mosins from World War Two, but they weigh <laughs> eight pounds each. So, do we really want to add that to our packs? I could see it being a practical thing like that. Like, we'll have picks and other tools to try to defend ourselves with. Do we really need these? I don't know. Yes, yes, you do. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much all I got. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm joking about it being a Bigfoot. I do think that there was some Russian government involvement. I think that there were probably mines being set off. Mm -hmm. I do think that this radiation was caused by something that was incurred at that spot, whether it be uh, some sort of weapon we're not being told about, or whether it's something that's you know radiation coming off these mines that they're exploding, because. I mean, at least the U.S. government tries to hide all their nasty shit, right? Like, you walk, like if you walk into the house of the United States, everything's going to look nice. You know, things are going to be dusted. There's going to be, uh, you know, a gun safe that has a fuck. You walk into the house of Russia and there's like coke laying out on the table and, you know, weapons everywhere and prostitutes and shit like that. And, and they just... They don't even normally try and cover it up. They're just like, yeah, we tried to fuse a monkey head to a person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we did a brain transplant on a, you know, it's it, it, but they're they're not talking about this at all, and that's what makes me think something they did caused this. So that's it. That's my boom. Where do all you right. stand officially? Officially, I think it's probably some probably some kind of military experiment, and these people are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. an explosion or whatever whatever noise was being made or whatever they were seeing could have been enough to scare them out of their tent and or or start to cause an avalanche it, like you yeah. said it could be it doesn't have to be exclusive that it was one or the other yeah or they may have said hey these guys are going through here perfect time to test some shit out and we'll just blame it on an avalanche maybe all right. Well, that's all we've got for you on the Dyatlov Pass incident. Uh, we've got guests coming up on UFOs in the Bible, alien abduction, climate change, Tartaria, and recent UFO reports from the UK. And you can let us know what you think happened at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our merch at crypticpodcaststore.com. If you want to donate a little bit of money to us, we'd really appreciate that. It'll keep the uh, 
avalanches away. You can do that at buymeacoffee.com forward slash PI. Socials are all in the notes. And Ryan, you want to tell us what to remember? Diligence is the silent detective that solves the enigma of the unknown. Drink! Good evening, Crypt Keepers. <laughs>